0: Jesus said on the cross as we move towards Easter and, and the one thing that we realize is at the end of your life, you don't say insignificant things as your last words. I've had the like, role of being with people at the end because of my role as a pastor and because there's been people who I deeply love, who I was there with at the end of their life and it's probably the holiest moment that we have. On this earth as somebody's taking their final breaths and as somebody is saying the final things that they're going to say and uh, I asked a hospice nurse I said uh, what what do people say at the end and they said this they talk about the love they felt and the love they gave they talk about the love they didn't receive or the love they didn't know how to offer the love that they withheld or maybe that they never felt for the ones that they should have loved unconditionally They talk about how they learned what love is and what love is not. They talk about what they loved and what they regret. But most of all, they say the things that they always wanted to say but couldn't before. There's something really beautiful about that. And I'm not sure that Jesus on the cross was having this moment where he was having trouble putting his thoughts together. I'm not sure that Jesus was in that moment having trouble expressing himself or having a hard time coming up with what to say But we do need to recognize that at the end of our life, the final words that we say, the last things that we give to the people that we love are the most significant. We don't at the end say things like, you know what, I really love chicken sandwiches. We don't at the end talk about our sports teams. We don't at the end talk about I don't know. I'd like a new shirt. We, we, we tell the people that we love the things that we want to say to them. We say the most important things. And so as we look at the final words of Jesus on the cross, what we see is this beautiful interaction that is full and rich of so much good news and beautiful, beautiful stuff. Uh, and today we're going to be a little ambitious because I'm going to try and go through two of the phrases that Jesus says on the cross. So uh, I'm going to try and work through that quickly, so let's, let's dig in right away. We're in Luke chapter 23. It's a, bit, a little ambitious, so let's go. Luke 23, verse 43, and Jesus says this. He says, and he said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. This is a unique phrase that Jesus makes at the end because it's the only phrase that he makes on the cross where he's actually responding to something that somebody else said. Everything else that's going on, Jesus is kind of leading the conversation. He's guiding the conversation, but this statement actually comes in a response to the thief on the cross who is beside him. So let's back up a little bit and go to verse 35. It says, the people stood by watching, and the rulers scoffed at him, saying, he saved others, let him save himself. If he's the Christ, the son of the chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, if you were the king of the Jews, save yourself, and there was an inscription over his head that says, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who was there railed at him, saying, are you not the Christ? So save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation and since we indeed are justly receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong." And he said to Jesus, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. There's a backstory here that I wish I knew. I don't know if you guys read scripture sometimes and feel that way, feel like I wish I knew the whole story of this man's life. I wish there was more context of what had happened in this man's life. We don't know why he's on the cross other than he's a thief. We don't know why he stole something. We don't know what it was he stole. We don't know how his life had played out to that moment. But as you read the text and you read the context of what he's saying to Jesus, you can't help but recognize the fact that he knows something about Jesus. I don't know if he heard Jesus preach somewhere. I don't know if he was planning his next heist, right? This thief and was gathered with his buddies and Jesus showed up into town and started preaching the kingdom of God and talking about the kingdom of God and all of a sudden he was there and he was captivated by this story and captivated by this man and now he finds himself on the cross next to him. I don't know if he was in the sanctuary every single Sunday in the synagogue, every single week worshiping, and he knew the stories of Jesus, and he knew the stories of Scripture, and his thieving was just something he did on the side that nobody else knew about, and nobody knew what was going on. We don't know the story of how he's connecting, but he has this very specific language that he uses. He says, remember me when you come into what? Your kingdom. Where does he get the language Kingdom. Only from Jesus' sermons. Because Jesus comes announcing that the kingdom of God is here, that the kingdom of God is near, that the kingdom of God is coming, that the kingdom of God has arrived, that the kingdom of God is close. And so if he's using that language, maybe he and Jesus had a conversation on the side somewhere as this was all going on. Who knows what's happening here? But there's a story here and there's a background here because he knows the core of Jesus' teaching. Maybe he had heard Jesus on the cross already say, Father, forgive them. And so he recognized that maybe forgiveness was available for him. I don't know what's going on in the story, but church history tells us that this man's name was Dissimus. He was a common thief. And this thief is present here. He's talking about the kingdom, and there's something that he saw in Jesus, either on the cross or prior to that, that made him recognize this is not a normal dude here beside me. There's something special about this man. And it's interesting what he asks. He says, will you remember me? I guess at the end of our life, we all want to be remembered. I guess at the end of our life, we all start thinking about our legacy and thinking about what it is that we've left behind, what it is that we've actually accomplished. Have we actually done the work that we were called to do? Have we actually done something significant here on earth? What's the legacy that we're going to leave? What are people going to remember me for? But in this moment, it's interesting language. It's a psalmist language. The psalms over and over again ask God to remember them. David in his songs over and over, Psalms 106.4 says, Remember me, O Lord, when you show your favor to your people. Help me when you save them. And this is interesting because he's not just asking Jesus for amnesty. He's not just asking Jesus for forgiveness. He's not just asking to get off the hook. The language feels different than that. It's not a, hey, can you bail me out here at the end? It's not a can you can you save me because I've messed everything up. It's will you remember me. He doesn't ask for forgiveness. He asks for presence. Remember me. And amazingly, Jesus responds in that moment the way that he responds to every single one of us when we come to him and when we ask for his presence. When we come to him and ask for him to be close, when we come to him and ask him to remember us, when we come to him and ask him to be around us and near us, the first thing he says is today. Today. Today you will be with me. And I don't know about you, but that's incredibly good news for me right now in this moment is that today, right now, at whatever time it is, right now in Marietta, Georgia, the, 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 the Son of God, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, God the Father is ready to be with us today. No matter what you did last night, no matter where you've been this weekend, no matter what your past tells you, today, in this moment, Jesus is willing to give you his presence. He's willing to be with you. He's willing to be there right now. Here's the amazing thing about this. The thief didn't have to wait for Easter Sunday for resurrection. Easter Sunday came early for him. Because he said, today, I want to be with you. And this has to affect our theology. Here's what we believe at Grace about Jesus. Jesus is the revelation of God. He is the word made flesh. He is the picture of what God is like. And so if we want to know what God is like, the best way we know what God is like is by looking at Jesus Son. Jesus said, I only do what I see the Father doing. I only act in the Father's interest. I only do what the Father tells me to do. And so Jesus is the only one who ever walked this earth who lived his entire life following the Father's will and aligned with the Father over and over and over again. And this has to affect our theology because sometimes our theology is when I die versus right now, today. So when I die, I will be with Jesus in paradise. When my life is over, I will be transported somewhere to heaven and something will happen in that moment. But what we see Jesus saying on the cross is today, right now, in this moment. So if you guys will allow me to get technical just for a minute, here's here's what happens. The Bible emphasizes two things. It emphasizes the manifest presence of God but it also emphasized the omnipresence of God. So the omnipresence of God, these are big Bible words, so you don't have to remember them, right? The omnipresence is the idea that God is everywhere, that he's available all the time and he is omnipresent. He is able to experience his presence even when we don't recognize him. He's always at work. God's manifest presence is his presence made manifest, his presence made real. The fact that he is with us and it's clear and it's convincing and we know God was in this place. We recognize that he's here. And here's the beautiful thing about God. Whether we recognize him or don't, he's here. He's present. He's with us. He's walking with us. In fact, when God came down to earth in the flesh and Jesus was born, when the angels came to announce him, what was the announcement? The announcement was Emmanuel, which means God with us. God has come. The kingdom has come. Now that Jesus has walked the earth, the presence of God is available to all of us right now in this moment at any time, at any moment, the presence of God is with us. And here's the second thing that Jesus says. He doesn't just say today. He says, today you will be with me in where? In paradise. It's an interesting word. Jesus never says it before and never says it after. It's not mentioned anywhere else in the entire New Testament except for one verse in Revelation. It's used twice in the New Testament. It's not the same word as heaven. We often read it and interpret it as, today you'll be with me in heaven. He's asking something else. You know what the verse in Revelation talks about? It points us back to the garden. It points us back to the tree of life. It points us back to that moment, remember when creation first began, before sin had entered into the picture, before we had broken everything and destroyed everything by our sin and by our brokenness, there's this picture of Adam and Eve walking in the cool of the day with God. There's this beautiful divine union that's happening that's unbroken by our disobedience, that's unbroken by us falling away or fading away. It's this picture of us walking in perfect unity before separ- sin separated us from God. And I don't want to get real technical in all of this because I can nerd out on all this stuff. But, but here's what we see. Say- Jesus is saying to the thief, you're the first one that gets invited back to the garden you're the first one that gets invited back into that space. Today, you will be with me in the garden as Adam and Eve were before everything was mistaken, and before everything was messed up. I think you can make a, make a case that the thief is the first one that gets to experience Easter. Even before Jesus, come on. And then he says, today you will be with me Psalm 27.4 says, The one thing I've asked and all that I seek is that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all of the days of my life and gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. If I could ask for one thing, David says, if there's one thing that I could request, it's not that I have the nations, it's not that I have power, it's not that I have wealth, it's not that I have strength, it's that I would be with you. The greatest thing that I would ask and all that I seek is that I might dwell in the house of the Lord, that I could be with you, that I could be with God. And, and there's this exchange on the cross, not just doesn't just reveal Jesus as this beautiful Savior who's loving and caring and inviting in, it reveals God as the Savior. God who is in this moment, then when we are at our worst, is inviting us. Think about this, that there is not a worse day in your life than the day that you're crucified. Right? That is the worst day. This is the worst moment of this guy's entire life. There is enormous shame associated with this. There is enormous family dynamics going on that we're going to get into here in a few minutes where this person's family is not just shamed, but they are outcasts for the rest of their lives because of what happened with their son. There is embarrassment If the soldiers are mocking Jesus, they're also mocking the thieves. There is this pain that he's experiencing. This is the culmination of the worst moment in our life. And in the moment where the thief is experiencing the worst moment in his life, Jesus says to him, what? Today you can be with me. I don't know if that's not good news, but I'm telling you, I have not heard better news in my life, that in the middle, when I am at my worst, when I am experiencing the worst moment in my life, when I'm experiencing the greatest amount of shame, the greatest amount of pain, the greatest amount of woundedness, the greatest amount of brokenness, when when the consequences of my own decisions have all come crashing down on me, the invitation of God the Father is today, you can be with me in the garden. Can I get an amen? It's breathtakingly good news, guys. For those of us who are close with the Lord and for those of us who have run from him, it's incredibly good news that he's inviting all of us back. And he doesn't choose the best of his 12 to say, this is the one, best in the class, holiest of holies, the one that is the kindest, the one that has done the most good works, the one that has done all of these amazing things. You get to experience Easter first. He chooses Dissimus, a common thief who sees Jesus for what he is. Second statement. Let's go to John chapter 20. John, yeah, John 4, 20, or John, where are we at in John, guys? John 13, all right. 19, sorry. 25. But standing by the cross of Jesus where his mother and his mother's sisters, Mary, the wife, Clopas, and and Mary Magdalene. And Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, and he said to the woman, woman, behold, here is your son. And then he said to the disciple, behold, here is your mother. And from that hour on, the disciple took her to his own home. Um, Here's what Jesus is doing on the cross, and there's this interesting dynamic, and, and, and there's a lot of things that are happening here. Jesus is both simultaneously stirring things up in heaven and shoring things up here on earth. There's stirring that's going on in heaven. Like what's happening on the cross, the angels are celebrating. This is the moment that everybody's been waiting for. This has been God's plan all along to redeem his family. There is amazing stirring going. The temple's about to be torn in two. Earthquakes are about to come. Resurrection is about to happen. All of these things in the spiritual realm are stirring up. But Jesus, who is both fully God and fully man, also looks down and sees his mother who he loves. And he knows the consequences of a family whose son dies on the cross. We're in a culture here in Rome where this is devastating to a family. The shame, the embarrassment. Mary would never get a job again. She would never be invited into any kind of freestanding as a citizen. The rights of women in this culture are already Horrifyingly bad. And it's a it's a it's it's a predatorial culture. It's a culture where the 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 strongest will survive and they will fight and oppress and do all kinds of things to push women down. And in this moment, he's realizing my mother has zero rights. She has zero other sons who can take care of her right now. Her husband is gone. I need to take care of my mother. And here's what Jesus is doing. He's always creating a new family that lives different than the culture around them. And so his family, his his nuclear family, is being destroyed by power and control and empire, destroyed by the worst instincts of humanity that would place an innocent man in a torture device and kill them. And in the middle of that, he's thinking about how much he loves his mother. Something really beautiful about this. Walter Brueggemann says his execution destroyed his family as executions by empires always do. So he had to make a new family. And he makes a new family between a father and a son. But what is left unsaid here is that Jesus, Mary's son, will be gone. And there is a family that he cannot be a part of, but he wants to make sure is okay. Jesus is always forming a new family. Remember Jesus walking onto the disciples' lives and suddenly calling them into something else. And remember how much Jesus says, you gotta leave everything behind to follow me. You've got to leave your family. You've got to leave your business. He says to the rich young ruler, you have to leave your wealth. There's this constant invitation to leave something and to come with him and to form a new family. And so he's forming a new family. And that new family that he's actually forming is actually in the future called the church. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 46, it says, while he was speaking to the people, and we're rewinding in his life here, going back to the beginning, Jesus is starting his ministry. He's just at the beginning of the ministry, and he's speaking to the people, and behold, his mothers and brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. Jesus is starting to name that he's the Savior, that he's the Messiah. His mother and brothers at that time think he's crazy and a lunatic, and so they're trying to come in and get him to stop. This is not a really fun scenario here. And and, and Jesus replies to him and he says this, who's my mother and who's my brother? He stretched out his hands towards the disciples and towards the people around him and he says, here are my mother and here are my brothers for whoever does the will of the father is my brother and my sister and my mother. Jesus says, whoever does the will of God is my family. This is my new family. I'm creating a new family. So we have this nuclear family that is wonderful and beautiful and good, and there's redemption that comes with Jesus and his family on on his journey. And then there's also this idea of the church family. There is this family of people who aren't blood, who aren't coming from the same mother and brother and sister, but they love you the same, they care for you the same, they stand by you the same. Jesus is always doing these things, and he's not devaluing the nuclear family, he's elevating the new family, which is the church. He says, let the dead bury their dead, You don't need to go bury your father, come with me. But he's not devaluing the nuclear family, he's inviting God's people to join a new family. He's inviting people to jump into this and he's teaching us that when we're born, we're born into a family but we're also born into a church family. We're invited to find people who become like family to us. That's why we use the metaphor over and over again here. The church is the family of God on mission together. And this year, guys, this year has been a year. I I just, I was watching this week as they were telling the story of, it was a year ago when the NCAA tournament got canceled. And I don't know about you guys, but that was when, the first time I realized that COVID was a big deal was when they started canceling basketball. Right? I was like, "Uh uh-oh, this is getting real now. Like, this is, this is something And and so it was a year ago, and 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 they started canceling the NCAA tournament. They started canceling everything. We stopped meeting in person as a church. The world changed and transformed in so many different ways. And there's been so much trauma and pain and hurt, not just in our community but around the world. But in the last year, you know what the leading cause for death for people under the age of 30 is? It's not COVID. It's not cancer. Suicide. Loneliness has become the epidemic to go along with our pandemic. Robert Storlow had this insightful definition of trauma. He says, trauma is when severe emotional pain cannot find a relational home in which it can be held. I want to say that again because this is so significant. Trauma is when severe emotional pain, which all of us experience in our life in one way or the other, in one form or another, But trauma comes when that pain cannot find what? A relational home to exist in. Many years ago, a a social psychologist, James Pennebaker, conducted the first large-scale study of trauma survivors. And his goal was to determine why some people experience long-term suffering and others are devastated and can't move forward. And as he began to experience this and he began to look at it and he began to understand what what he saw was the only difference between people that make it through trauma and have functioning lives ahead of them and people who don't is a relational family. That's it. That's the core difference is the people around you can actually get you through your pain. The people around you can actually sustain you, encourage you, love you, care for you, bless you, serve you, walk beside you, lift you up, urge you on, sharpen you, walk with you, care for you. All of these things can happen. And you could make a case right now that there has never been a time in our lifetimes where Jesus needed to look at the church more and say to us, look around the room, this is your family. Look around the room, this is your mother, this is your brother, this is your sister, this is your family because right now more than ever we need to check in on one another. Right now more than ever we need to look for ways to bless and serve one another. Right now more than ever we need to encourage one another. We need to call out the best in one another. We need to speak love and grace and patience and kindness. We need to be the church for one another. John Mark Comer, a pastor and a writer says this, if I'm reading, the, reading Jesus and the New Testament authors correctly, they're calling us as followers of Jesus to be the relational home for one another. They envision the church as a family, not a perfect community by any means, but one in which we suffer through the world of sin together, where we come together to banish loneliness from our hearts and hold each other's pain in love. And of course, all families are dysfunctional. It's just a question of degree. And one of the great tragedies of the last year, in my opinion, one of the greatest tactics of the enemy has been that the church has often been just as divided and hostile as the world, and we cannot pretend otherwise. For a growing number of Christians, particularly young Christians, and especially in individualistic Western cities, the church is not their relational home anymore, and often it isn't for a good reason. It's because the church has been structured more like a concert than a family. It's because the church has become a place of wounding more than healing. And for that, the only thing I can say is, I'm really sorry. I, I can't tell you guys how many people I've spoken to this year who are saying, I don't know what to do with the church anymore. The people who led me to Jesus are also so hostile and angry right now that I don't know how to reconcile that. The people who led me to Jesus have hurt me in so many deep ways. The people around me are constantly warring and fighting, and there's drama and trauma and emotional pain and hurt, and the church has become this place that's just as divisive in the world. And if that's you, I I get it. I'll just be honest, I've been hurt by the church this year too, in deep ways. John Tyson, a pastor in New York City and a friend, has started using the term for his church, we are searching for people who will be fiercely loyal to one another. We're searching for people who will not let their preferences and their ideas of consumerism and their what I want and what I hope for and I wish that we had this program and I wish that we sang this song and I wish that we did this sermon series and I wish that we had more comfortable seats and I wish our coffee had a little more hazelnut in it and I wish that the lights were a certain way and the carpet was a certain way. We need to throw all of that stuff out the window and say, why don't we just be family? Why don't we just become fiercely loyal to one another? What every church right now needs is people who are fiercely loyal to God, fiercely loyal to each other, and fiercely loyal to the mission of what God has for us. We don't have room for divisiveness. We don't have room for petty arguments. We don't have room for for, for small dramas and insignificant things. I I feel like if I'm not careful, guys, my entire week, every moment, 40 hours, will be taken up with insignificant small things and I will waste my time when there is a community out there that needs us. And I don't want us to be involved in all these petty little differences and all these small little arguments. I want us to be at a place where we're so fiercely loyal to God and to one another that we're saying, listen, we don't have to agree on everything. We're gonna love each other. We're gonna talk things out. We're gonna try and figure it out. But, but our heart and our goal is to get outside of this place and to love and serve the world that desperately needs us. This, this weekend, we did Discover Labs And we had, I don't know, it's like 45 people in this room talking about their kingdom dreams. And we went through all these exercises and all these kinds of fun things about discovering what your calling is and figuring out what God's doing in your life and looking at your story and looking at your passions and looking at the problems of the world around you and saying, how can I be a solution to that? What is the good work that God has prepared for me in advance to do? And there was this beautiful thing that was happening. I was walking around yesterday and it was just a beautiful day yesterday. I like amen, right? It was just incredible yesterday, and I'm walking around outside, and there's kids playing at the park, and there's kids playing basketball out there, and my son's out there with some boys from his basketball team and one of his coaches, and there's these groups of people that are gathered around all over the property praying for one another and encouraging one another and calling out the best in one another, and I'm walking past these groups, and I'm hearing this affirmation like, yes, that's your kingdom calling. Yes, you can do that. Yes, you're a Amazing! Yes, we believe in you. Yes, yes, yes. And I'm sitting here thinking, Lord, can we just have this every weekend? Can this be the picture of the church over and over again? Can we be a place of prayer, of affirmation, of co-discernment, of real community and not consumerism? Because when the church is the church, it's beautiful. When we are family to one another, something beautiful happens when Jesus looks at us and says, this is your family, Something changes in us. Our posture changes towards one another. And our posture changes towards the world. I've said this over and over again, guys. I I love the church, not for what it is today, but for what it could be. I think the church is flawed, guys. I think any church is flawed. I think our church is flawed. I think we're gonna disappoint you. I think we're gonna make mistakes. I think we're gonna frustrate you. I think we're gonna make decisions that you don't like. I'm sorry that that's gonna happen. But I still believe with every bit of my being that the church is beautiful. And that the church of God is where God will bring the manifest wisdom of the world down and beautiful things can happen. And so here's the good news for today. Today, Jesus looks at us and says, Today, you can be with me. And today, Jesus looks at us and says, This is your family. This is your family. Look around the room. These are your brothers. These are your sisters. This is your mother. This is your father. This is your family. And the beautiful news is we get to be with Jesus and we get to be with one another. We can't make some kind of great promise of what's going to happen in the future or who we're going to become, but we can practice being in his presence every day together. We can stand beside each other when we're hurting. We can be each other's relational home in the middle of trauma and pain and hurt. And we can invite everybody in and say, we're not perfect, but we're doing the very best we can to be with each other and be with Jesus every day. So Heavenly Father, I pray that you would teach us to be with one another, to love each other, to walk with each other, to carry each other's burdens, to serve one another, To show grace, to show forgiveness, to show mercy, to model the fruits of the Spirit with one another. And then we just simply ask Jesus, we want to be with you today in paradise. We trust that your presence is the promise. And that, that presence is not just available for us in the future when we die. It's not just available for us when we go to heaven, but your presence is available with us today that you want to walk with us, that you want to talk with us, that you want to commune with us, that you want divine union between you and us. And that's our highest calling, Lord, is that we want to be with you. We want to align with you. We want to walk with you. And So we thank you for that promise and we ask you to be with us. It's in your holy name we pray, amen. We're gonna move into a time of communion and as we do, I don't know if there's a better week to just simply remember the beautiful promises that Jesus made and remember the length that Jesus went on the cross to prove that these promises are true to all of us. And so as we take the, the, the juice and the bread today, let's remember Jesus on the cross. Let's remember his sacrifice, let's remember his grace, and let's remember his mercy, and let's think about who is it that I'm called to be family with this week? Who is it that I need to reach out to and love as a brother or a sister or as a mother or father? And then what does it look like for me to be present with Jesus today? Let's move into a time of worship and communion.